Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really cool founder. I think that we're going to be finding his story quite inspiring. I mean, now he's built a rocket ship, but, you know, back in the day, he was working out of vans, out of offices that had cockroaches, rats. I mean, you name it. So it's definitely full of adventure. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mina Nada. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally, you know, from there, from Australia, your parents are immigrants from Egypt. Uh, they went there in the 80s. But give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was how was life growing up there? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, my, my parents were, were migrants to Australia uh, in the 80s. I was born over here. Growing up, you know, I didn't have a lot of family because, you know, you know so it's pretty far away from, from Egypt. So uh, you learn to uh, make friends and, uh, and, and also just kind of uh, entertain yourself. So I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time you know, making new friends. And uh, I suppose uh, I found kind of some passions for myself in, uh, in language and history. And, and I was pretty academic growing up. Um, didn't necessarily think I'd get into business. I, I thought I'd get into law. I loved uh, watching kind of, you know, uh, all, all those shows on TV, whether it was Suits or, or Law and Order. I studied law once I got to university. But I quickly realized that in Australia, the system is, is quite different. You can't be both a, uh, an advocate in court as well as a, a traditional lawyer in Australia, or either a barrister um, and you kind of appear in court, but you can only be a sole trader. You, you cannot work in a team or a company. Um, or you can work in a team and a company, but you can't speak in, in court, which, uh, which kind of is probably one, one, of the, one of the funnest things that I, I was looking forward to. So I, I kind of realized that during the course of my studies and, and you know, found, found a way to get out. Now, in your case, I mean, once you got out of law and and you went out there to the to the employment market, I mean, you you went into consulting, and I think that consulting, to a certain degree, gives you a really good perspective when it comes to tackling problems. So, how do you think you know it has helped you as you're thinking about problems now, uh, being in the consulting world? Yeah, it definitely gives you a lens. I think my initial driver for being in consulting was that. Um, you know, when I was working in the law, I found a lot of the time I was executing a deal that I didn't think was a good deal. I think there was like one particular deal I was on for a particular M&A transaction. It was like an Indian car parts manufacturer that was buying like a mine in Western 
Australia or Western New South Wales, one of the states in Australia. And, and you know, naive young Mina, you know, said to the partner, like, this, this seems like a dumb deal. You know, are we going to advise them not to do it? And, and they said, no, that's not our job as lawyers. Our job is to kind of execute the, the paperwork, basically. And, and so I, I joined consulting with the ideal of um, uh, helping companies have the right strategies and do the right sort of M&A and, and, and you know, pursue the, the, right, the right objectives. Um, and again, I think naive Mina um, thought that I would be, you know, whiteboarding with CEOs. And, and the reality is like a junior uh, entry-level analyst at these consulting firms is that you actually do a lot of number crunching. And that was very eye-opening for me because I studied humanities, obviously, and, and you know, I studied languages and I studied law. Um, I didn't really have a very strong financial toolkit. And I think what consulting taught me was just a very analytical approach to uh, to business. And that actually, you know, the, the whiteboard is good for, for some things, but there's a lot that you can achieve with numbers. And that's been really valuable for me. I, I think it brought out a part of me. I guess I'm very logical, um, but it kind of teaches you how to, uh, you know, apply that logic in a numerical way, a quantitative way, an analytical way to real world problems and, and to come up with, you know, useful, um, uh, ways to come up with like what, you know, it might not be objectively the right answer, but at least, you know, help give you a reason, a set of Russian, a rationale for why something might be more right than, than another reason than another path, you know, under a certain, certain set of assumptions or conditions. And I think that is a really powerful, um, toolkit to, to take into business. So how do you, how do you land in the liberal? What, what was that the transition there? Because obviously you know, being there in Australia and, uh, you know, your parents there, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, they were they were feeling great about having a son that studied law, having a son that was at Bain, you know, a very reputable firm. And, and here comes Deliveroo knocking as an opportunity. It's a company with 100 employees. I mean, not the company now that is today with like over 8,000 employees. So I'm sure that your parents were like, son, what, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my parents are doctors, so my, my mom still wants me to become a doctor. So <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just my parents, I guess, even the people at Bain kind of thought it was a bit of a crazy idea. I think a common path, you know, for, for people in, in the firm that I was at was to get into sort of private equity and, and um, you know, or, or go do their MBA. And, and so I was looking at both paths. Um, I actually, I applied for a job. A, a, so I, I had a job offer from a, from a, a private equity fund that I was weighing up against uh, the, the job offer from Deliveroo. But I think that the, the reason that I, I, I kind of ultimately went with Deliveroo route was I, I love the idea of being with people, of, of managing people, of you know, just being in the real world. Um, whereas I felt that finance was a bit more of sort of financial engineering or, or you know, a bit further away from, from the front line of, of, of everyday people and, and um, you know, making things happen, uh, you know, it, it, again, in the real world. And I think, you know, if you look at Zumo today, it's, it's, you know, it's not crypto, it's not even, you know, pure software, it's software enabled, there's tech in there, there's a lot of kind of crazy engineering that goes into what we do. But also, I think a lot of people who join Zumo join, because they love they can see their work out there on the streets and, and in the real world. And, and uh, you know, so, so there's, there's, it's quite a complex business, there's hardware, there's software, there's finance, there's operations. Um, and you know our job is to bring that all together and to provide a, a, a solution to customers. And and I think that that was ultimately um, the the challenge that I was seeking. It was you know a really holistic um, approach to to business bottom up. And I think that the opportunity for Deliveroo was very entrepreneurial. It was you know be the first hire in Australia, build your own business, hire your own team, 
Uh, and, you know, the good thing about doing it in that sort of environment is that you don't have the financial risk. It's not your money that you're putting to work, but you can back yourself. And, and if you make good decisions and good investments, then the results come out. Um, and so I, I kind of, uh, uh, it felt very natural for me. Not to mention, you know, when I was doing consulting, I was doing a lot of late nights, getting a lot of, you know, food delivery. It was always coming late and it was never very good. So the concept of actually having, you know, 30 minute delivery of, of great food was was novel and, and attractive for me. I, when I joined, I didn't think it would really be big outside of, say, corporate markets. And, you know, very quickly we discovered that, you know, actually the market for this is predominantly, you know, consumers and, and, and um, you know, we initially, again, also thought of it in, in a in the sort of suburbs, but you know, very quickly we realized that it's also really big out in the in the outer suburbs as well. So, you know, I think a lot of the people when they join a startup, they they don't see how big it, you know it, it can be, and and it keeps on growing and, and picking up momentum as you go along. Now, in your case, around 2017, the company for Sumo actually came to mind, but rather than executing on it, you went and 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 you moved to Singapore to 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 join Mobike. So. Why did you do that rather than just going at it with, with Sumo? What was holding you back? Yeah, so, so actually, so Zumo, it used to be called Bolt Bikes. Um, uh, and you know, we changed that name partly because it was like, you know, as we decided to over time go international, we came up against like Bolt, the, the East European um, ride sharing company. And there's like another scooter company in the US called Bolt. So we, we changed the name. But we started it in 2017, me and my co founder, um, as a side hustle. So we bought so, so we, we saw that there was a need for more electric bikes in food delivery fleets we saw that this vehicle was really what we believe the future form factor that, that made sense for last mile logistics um uh, but we also saw there were a lot of challenges the vehicles were not fit for purpose they were not affordable uh they need, need a lot of maintenance uh and uh and nobody was really able to provide on-demand servicing for for the people that that, that required them and so what me and my co-founder did in 2017 was like test a dozen or so bikes, pick a couple that we thought were, were the best for um, commercial use and buy. Initially, it was just 10, you know, and, and it was, you know, a scary, you know, investment for both of us. Um, the first really meaningful investment, I guess, we had made. Uh, and, you know, we watched closely for the next few months as, you know, we, we started to rent them out to couriers and we, and we um, uh, started to watch how profitable or not profitable this was. And, quickly realized that it was profitable. We, we made back the money on the, on the first batch of bikes. We decided to go buy more bikes. Um, and so that kind of continued very much as a side hustle because back then we didn't really know how big it could be. Um, and, and I think, you know, between mid, uh, at some point in 2017, we had the first 10 bikes. And by the end of 2018, uh, we had a, a couple of hundred bikes that was all kind of self-funded. Um, and so it was just it, it was just a side hustle. I I, I moved with uh, Deliveroo to Singapore um, at the end of 2017 um, or the middle of 2017, and then I, while I was there, I transitioned to another company called Mobike. All the while, you know, me and my co-founder were were just doing this on on on, on the side. And and I think the reason we didn't go full time back then was, well, I guess we weren't very experienced at fundraising. Uh, we we weren't sure that you know we we could necessarily do it. We, we weren't necessarily sure in, in the, the business model and, and we had a lot to learn. Um, and we obviously, you know, uh, were comfortable in the security of, of paid jobs and we each felt that we had stuff to, to, to do in, in the meantime. And I think that my exposure to Mobike, which is a dockless bike sharing company out of China, which, which I guess similar today to Bird and Lime and Tier and Dot and, and Voy and those sorts of companies, 
um, but really uh, an earlier version of them that, that came out of China was really uh, eye-opening because I saw really what it was to manage a fleet of electric bikes or in, in those days, regular bikes at scale. Um, and uh, and also I saw the mobility industry and and, the, and what it was like to raise money in, the, in that industry. And um, I think that a lot of the experience that came out of Mobike um, also helped to inform how we could do uh, you know what came to be Zumo at scale, and so I think there's there's also kind of a a sense of you know building up experience and 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 knowing when the right when when is the right time to go all in on something. So when was the right time to go all in on Zumo? You know, sometimes you choose it, and sometimes it it doesn't. So so you don't you don't choose the timing perfectly, or or kind of you're forced to make a decision. So Mobike actually was acquired by uh, Meituan, which is a like Chinese food delivery. Equivalent of like DoorDash or or, um, or, or Deliveroo in, in China, uh, and they wanted to focus on the Chinese market. So basically, all the international markets got put up for sale and and, and transitioned. And so by the end of 2018, uh, I was looking for, for for my next gig. And so uh, you know, I, I remember I did some consulting, I did some some soul searching, uh, and I just kept coming back to to Bolt as it was known back then, and thinking there's just a lot more in this business, and maybe not in the exact you know. Um, Way that it is today, but this concept that we're that we're on, which is micro mobility for commercial use, has uh, has tremendous potential. And I can see that the future of of last mile logistics should increasingly be, you know, smaller form factor electric vehicles. Uh, and I can see all the reasons why it's not there today: technological challenges on the hardware, tech, you know, uh, service network challenges on the servicing. The supply chain is challenging. The financing, you know, you can't, it's not easy to get a loan, you know, as a business to cover an electric bike. The, the, the banks don't treat it the same way they treat a car or a, or a motorbike or, or a truck. So there are a whole lot of reasons why the industry was not mature enough to support that that sort of business model. Uh, and so that broad concept is is what encouraged us to to kind of go all in on, on, on Bolt and expand the concept, uh, decide to build our own vehicles, to build our own software, to expand internationally. Uh, and fortunately, in 2019, I was at a conference in um, San Francisco, a micro mobility conference, and I was introduced to um, a VC fund called Maneve, who are early stage mobility investors. Uh, and you know, they they were kind of they split between the US and Israel, uh, and they were happy to invest um, you know over two million dollars in kind of a, a seed round for us without actually ever coming to Australia, meeting my co-founder in real life, uh, seeing any of our bikes in real life. They kind of had a thesis. I guess that's the good thing about um, sector-specific investors is that they kind of had a sim- similar thesis to us uh, and, and our business. They, they liked our foundation story and they liked our vision. Uh, and they gave us money to just go out and do it. And, and I guess those guys took a, took a risk on us. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's definitely paying off. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on 
when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So for the people that are listening, before we get into the into the fundraising, because I think that this, that's going to be very interesting, what is the business model of the company and how do you guys make money to, to for them to understand? Yeah, so Zumo has two uh, revenue streams. Uh, one is uh, direct-to-courier and the other one is enterprise. Uh, and so the direct-to-courier business is basically focused on providing vehicles for gig workers, predominantly in the food delivery space, so your Uber Eats, Deliveroo, DoorDash type, type couriers. Um, and uh, and so it's, it's kind of similar to, to a B2C business, but it's more prosumer rather than consumer. It's, it's, it's similar to the tradie who wants a pickup truck, um, you know, in the way that, that they are using the vehicle for business purposes, but, um, you know, you need, to, you need to advertise to them and, and, and reach out to them as, as you would a consumer. Um, Having said that, they're, they're very focused on, on like the ROI of the spend in, in a way that's different from somebody who wants to go buy a Porsche. Um, so that's one part of our business, and that's where we started. And I think that's very important because, you know, the customer ultimately that we were dealing with was the courier. And so we had to be very courier-centric, highly customer-centric to make sure that we had a product that they liked. And then the other part of our business is what we call enterprise, and those enterprises tend to... Um, employ their workers rather than engaging them as gig workers and they provide them the vehicles and so you know we'll have deals for you know thousands of bikes with one company or another company and and provide those vehicles typically on like a long-term lease um and so you know the proposition for those companies is you know here's the best vehicle for last mile delivery here's a software stack to enable um you know your efficient usage of those vehicles and the integration of that data into your systems um and also we will provide you the servicing network that will maintain the uptime of those vehicles because we have customers that are doing over 50,000 kilometers per annum on the bikes and you know, that's that's to give you a feel the average Australian is doing 15,000 one five thousand kilometers per annum on a car so the the usage is, is extremely intense for like what's a light commercial vehicle and and so no matter what you need to have safety checks you need to have um, just consistent maintenance of the, on those vehicles no matter how you know, uh, robust the vehicles are. And so, you know, we basically developed a, a, a one-stop stop shop solution for customers to be able to move to this new form factor that they know is superior to using a truck or a van. Um, uh, but, you know, solving all those problems that I saw and my co-founder saw back in 2017 were stopping individual gig workers from, from using the bike, which is kind of like the bike is not fit for purpose. It breaks down all the time. Nobody knows how to fix it. Nobody's going to fix it quickly. And I can't even afford it because nobody will finance it. Uh, and then, you know, there's a whole bunch of value-added stuff that I could do if this was a connected vehicle and there was some software systems in place. And so we bring all of that together and, and provide that to, to our customers, whether it's on that like direct career or on the or on the enterprise side. And on the going back to the fundraising talk, um, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Cumulatively to date, we've raised around hundred million dollars between equity and debt. 
So how do you go on your business about the equity and the debt? I think that the way that we think about it is uh, we have a lot of money tied up in inventory, which is the bikes themselves. And that is better to be funded out of debt um, rather than equity. The, the reason for that is we know that the bike, once put in a customer's hands, it pays itself off in you know X months and then it generates profit after that. Um, and rather than diluting our ownership in the business by using equity to to um, to fund that, we should be funding it as much as possible with 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 debt finance. And historically, that was the majority of our capital requirement was just getting these bikes to the hands of customers. And then because almost everybody is paying for these on some sort of um, financing arrangement or um, you know leasing arrangement or rental arrangement, you you don't get your money back straight away. In the same way, that like you know compared to a, someone who's doing drop shipping. They buy, uh, you know, a thousand dollars worth of widgets. They sell them for one thousand two hundred dollars, and they kind of make their money back straight away. They have a very short sort of, you know, um, cash cycle. On the other hand, Zumo's cash cycle is much longer, and so because the assets themselves are quite expensive, you need quite a lot of capital to to fund that. And and then you add to that long lead times of supply chain, and you having to pay deposits quite a quite a fair bit out. And then you know, add add to that that you don't get the the money paid back on the bike for for a while until after it's been deployed. You know, you actually need a lot of money for that, but it's better to fund that out of debt than out of equity, and and so um, that's how we think about funding that part of the business. And then what we try to focus the equity capital raising on is investing into a technology stack. So um, that's investing into hardware development, investing into software development, but also investing into you know expansion of our um, physical footprint and our marketing and, and our teams that are that are growing the, the business. You know, and, and that stuff can be cash burning until you get to scale. And so broadly, that's how we think about allocating capital in the business and wanting to raise equity for one set of purposes and and debt for another set of purposes. And for the fundraising journey, I mean, being in Australia, how was, you know, raising money from people all the way here in the US? I mean, it's obviously very far away. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now that are outside of the US that are wondering, hey, how the hell do I also get, you know, investors from from New York, like you guys did, you know, being so far away. I mean, how do you go about that? And what was that experience? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, in, in 2019, I probably spent more than 50% of the year traveling outside of Australia. I think that was a mix of fundraising, setting up operations, you know, going to Asia to set up our supply chain. Um, so, so not all of it was necessarily fundraising. But like, I think at the time, you know, I was single, so I didn't have anybody kind of at home on my back saying like, you know, hurry up and come back. Where are you? I guess that's, that's you know, uh, part of, part of you know, an enabler, I suppose, being able to make that, make that leap. And, uh, and I kind of spent, I was in San Francisco for, I don't know, two, three, four weeks living on a friend's couch, you know, literally, um, you know, while I was out there meeting, meeting investors and, and, um, and, and raising capital. Um, I think back in 2019, the Australian VC environment was not as developed as it is today. And so I think we were fortunate. We, we found the right investors in Maniv because, you know, they were global. It's very similar to Israel in that, you know, it's very hard to make a global, you know, it's hard to make a very big business in your home country. You have to go global very early. So, you know, Swedish companies and, and Israeli companies and Australian companies have this in common that they need to go international very, very early in their lifespan to kind of prove the global kind of product market fit and the scale that they can achieve. And so I think with Israeli investors, we found that, you know, they were open to that concept of going international very early. Uh, and as kind of experts in the industry, they, they backed us. We, we then kind of our next round was led by an Australian fund. Actually, our, our Series A and Series B were both led by Australian funds. 
But I think now we're starting to attract a lot more international attention. And so I think it's like we had the people who are the real experts in the sector, you know, seed us. And then I think Australian investors where we have good networks, you know, have really come in thereafter and, and I guess, you know, seen the good stuff that we're doing and, and, and backed us. But we've also built up quite a strong um, shareholder registry of, of international investors, whether it's uh, Americans, Canadians, Europeans. Um, that are you know really great for also opening up introductions as we kind of look to further capital raising in, in the future and and you know actually the Australian environment now is mature enough that we could you know, theoretically keep on funding ourselves just from from Australian investors but I think that given that now the majority of our business is between the US and Europe um, it makes sense to bring on more uh, overseas investors as well over time and in terms of uh, building you know the company and and also um getting surrounded by the right people. What what have you learned about making the right hires? Because, you know, obviously, you know, I'm sure that you've gone through some experiences of of, of bad people, bad apples, no? You know, I think one thing is definitely do very strong reference checks, um, especially if there's someone, you know, I think the best hires tend to be via referral because they're from networks of people who you know and, and they're not going to recommend somebody crazy, you know, if, if there's someone that you know and trust as well. Um, when someone comes out of the blue who on paper seems good, you know, I think the, the, the lesson for us has been, you know, you can't just trust what you see. Um, you know, just maybe stepping back, Zuma grew very quickly through COVID. So a lot of our majority of our hiring was actually, well, not majority, but, but a huge number, amount of our hiring was during lockdowns where Australians couldn't go overseas. We hired phenomenal leaders um, and we did that all remotely, never meeting people in person. So we got very good at, at, um, at recruiting entirely remote. And, and that's, very hard and even today we've gone back to like you know expecting at least one in-person you know meeting before we, we we do the majority of hires um having said that we make exceptions because we know that we can also do pretty good hiring remotely but you know i think the learning is to just definitely do reference checks because i think when you meet somebody in person it's easy to kind of you can get a feel for you know is there a little bit of extra kind of arrogance in there or is there you know some sort of personality defect or or some strange kind of behavior that you know could be an indicator of you know someone who's not going to be a team player or 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 kind of be someone who, who behaves in a way that's you know not not um you know in line with the company's values um and so i think you know in the absence of of that then the really important thing is to just find people who dealt with this person historically don't just go with the references that they provide and also if they provide references that are kind of just in writing to make sure to actually speak to direct managers um, of, of them before. And I think that that process is just is a pretty robust way of keeping out bad apples. And But it's hard to get it right all the time because, you know, especially in high growth startups, you're moving so quickly and you might see, meet someone who you think is like, oh, wow, on paper, I can't believe this person is, is you know, interested to join us. Um, and then, and then, you know, sometimes as people are, are interested to join a startup because they've, they've kind of maybe got a, a, a dotted history. Nice. Now, in terms of the size of uh, Sumo, so that people that are listening to really get a, an understanding of the scope, uh, how big is the company? I mean, anything that you can share around number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we're about 400 people, uh, more than 400 people globally now. Um, we've got uh, a chunk of headcount in Australia, which is sort of your corporate and, and a lot of the tech uh, headcount sits here, but the majority of the operations and marketing uh, and sales headcount sits between uh, uh, Europe and the US, um, where the majority of our actual bikes um, uh, are in place. And a really big chunk of the of the headcount is is kind of sort of those maintenance teams. I discussed how kind of 
um, intensive the maintenance was of these vehicles. And so we we have pretty big teams of mechanics that are um, both mobile mechanics as well as you know just in in warehouses that are you know constantly maintaining and fixing and checking and doing QA on on vehicles uh, in in the markets where we have the most vehicles deployed. And in 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 terms of like visualizing here the the future together and and kind of like bringing the listeners as well into how you guys are thinking imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of sumo is fully realized what does that world look like yeah i think there's a few things that are in zumo's control and think a few things that are not but i think in in the future world where zumo's vision is fully realized we have a lot more cities that are similar to paris in that they have um seen the light of micromobility being a much more efficient way to move around, much better for the environment, introduced a lot more bike lanes and congestion charges and things that are um, taking cars off the road and making the roads friendly for smaller form factors. I think that's really critical. Uh, you know, I think any urban planner or, or you know, mobility expert sees that urban centers are not fit for purpose for, for cars. Uh, and 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 wants to make them more friendly. I think one of the biggest things that's holding back micro mobility is simply unsafe streets or rules and cultures that put cars above human beings. And and I think that that's a fundamental mind shift that you know mindset shift, which is I expect to take place over the coming years. And there's a very strong movement towards that that's driven by you know people who are, who are environmentally oriented, people that are just want their streets to be safer and quieter, and 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 people who just care about efficiency and want to get to work more quickly. So I think that there's a broad change in our infrastructure of our cities that supports micromobility. And I think in that, in that world, um, what you see is uh, a variety of um, uh, light electric vehicle form factors that will thrive in the enablement of last mile delivery. I think that you know, another sort of secular macro trend that is happening is that e-commerce, which is already expanding very rapidly its share of all commerce and depends fundamentally upon delivery is getting quicker and quicker. And so customer expectations are going from one week delivery, two day delivery, same day delivery, you know, same hour delivery, 10 minute delivery increasingly. Uh, and to enable that sort of speed of delivery, on the one hand, you need basically micro fulfillment centers that are closer to the end user and basically electric bikes. Because, uh, you know, again, in, in those urban environments, uh, you know, cars are not able to move around, are able to park, are able to kind of Move nimbly, able to enter the foyer of a of, of a apartment block or or, or you know um, uh, skyscraper very efficiently, and so uh, in those environments, uh, you know, expect to see a, a multiplicity of of um, of different vehicles. And in the same way that in kind of our traditional sense of the automotive world, uh, there are different form factors for commercial uh, vehicles. You have small pickup trucks, big pickup trucks, small trucks, big trucks, small vans, big vans. Um, all serving somewhat different commercial use cases. We also see a world where it's not just going to be like one silver bullet vehicle that rules them all. There'll be a multiplicity of vehicle form factors to to meet the varying needs of um, of different businesses and, and and different sort of consumers. And so I think already we are seeing in Europe and the United States electric bikes outselling cars, and actually they're the number one electric vehicle that exists. I think that that trend will accelerate. I think that electric vehicles or electric bikes specifically are very, very early in their technological journey. I, I think that they're, they're similar to where you know, mobile phones were, I don't know, 15 years ago. There's, there's still, you know, the price of mobile phones has been going up because the technology that people want in their phones is, is, is improving. You know, whether it's 
better cameras or better processors or better screens. And, you know, I see the same thing for electric bikes. You know, when we look at our roadmap going, going out forward, people want ABS brakes, people want better connectivity, people want um, bigger motors, people want uh, more colors. And they basically want um, features that, that are not able to be done today at scale. But, you know, in the same way that, you know, Mercedes-Benz will roll out the latest technology in the S-Class and then it'll trickle down to kind of more um, familiar um, mass modalities over time. I think that's sort of going to be the journey that we see in micromobility as well, where a lot of these features that consumers want, uh, whether it's you know, also um, advanced driver assistance um, or, or safety features like LiDAR and that sort of thing, uh, entering into the fray. So I think more form factors, more volume, and more advanced features, I guess, is the, is the simple way to, to summarize all of that. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time back in time to that moment where you were thinking about going at it full time, giving everything you got. And imagine you were able to go back in time and have a chat with that younger self, with that younger Mina. And you were able to give yourself one piece of business advice before going at it with the business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think it would have been think bigger, uh, you know, uh, aim higher and, you know, be even more ambitious because um, I don't know if it's an Australian thing or a lack of experience thing, but, you know, when we went to first raise our, our initial round, it was, you know, very much, we have this business, we know it works. You know, if you give us some money, we're going to help you make more money as an investor. Um, you know, back then I wasn't really talking about, I think this is what the future could be in four or five years time. All of our thinking was about like the next one year or two years. Um, and, and I think that um, you know, that works for traditional, maybe private equity style investing, which is also, I guess, what, what I was more familiar with. But I think venture investors who are kind of really betting on founders and macro trends and really big outcomes, um, they want to see that you have uh, that, that broader vision. And I think that it wasn't for a, a lack of having the imagination. I think it was you know what I've learned, I think, over the last number of years about 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 capital raising in the in the VC space is that um, you know people have very long time horizons. They're not expecting to make their money back in two years' time or three years' time. They want to back founders who have a vision out for you know three, four, five, six, seven years uh, and have a broad kind of game plan on that. And so you know I think that um, we've you know every capital raise we've we've become more ambitious actually, and and you know partly it's driven by you know, we've been successful and we've delivered on what we've said we would do. And obviously there's a bit of a balancing act there. There's a lot of charlatans out there who raise money for, you know, crazy ideas that they have no way, they have no idea how they're going to execute them. Um, I think, I think, you know, the, the nature of, of myself and my co-founder, we're very pragmatic, very practical. We, you know, we don't do necessarily like the Silicon Valley crazy kind of future, future painting vision. Uh, we haven't done that necessarily. And I think that, um, you know, I think if we'd been a little bit more uh, broadly framed in the way that we we express, you know, what we can do and what we can't, what we might do, we might have moved a lot more quickly and 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 um, uh, you know, been able to take more risks than than what we've done to, to date. So I think you know that that's that's one thing. I'm not sure not sure if it's necessarily the one thing I would say, but it's definitely one thing that comes to mind. And Mina, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I guess LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, I'm there and, and, uh, you know, open to, to receiving inbounds from, from there all the time, always come across lots of interesting people there. I think that's actually how we, how we connect. 
Amazing. Well, Mina, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you on with us today. My absolute pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for, for also listening to my story. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.